0: Okay, so we're continuing our study of the Ten Commandments. Uh, We are studying the Third Commandment today. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7 is our scripture verse. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So before we jump into the Third Commandment, let's take a few moments to review and then put the commandments in the proper context. In terms of putting the commandments in the proper context, what is a large framework that we can use to approach the Bible? And there are probably many frameworks, but one of the main ones is what we call covenant theology, right? And what are the three main covenants that we study? Covenant of grace. Covenant of grace, yes. Covenant of works. Very good. Covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption, or the pactum salutis. Very good. So, what is the pactum salutis or the covenant of redemption? Any takers on that? Mm-hmm.
1: It's the uh, overarching intro trinitarian covenant uh, that guides all of history and salvation. Very good.
0: Thank you, Connor. And what was it instituted? Before time. Before time. That's right. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit in covenant with each other to redeem the people for, for God. But then we have the covenant of works, which is given to who? Adam, in the garden, right? under the covenant works, the working summary is do this and live. Adam was created good, but was he created perfect? He was not created perfect. There was still a greater uh, heightened being in store for Adam. Had he passed the probation period, he would have been brought into consummation with God, where there would be no threat of Satan. There would be no evil bounding in the garden, but he failed the covenant of works, and we and him are all under the covenant of works, saved by but by God's grace, and that's what he instituted. The covenant of grace, and that was instituted where? Uh, in the garden. In the garden. Very good. Chapter three. Um, it was the proto evangelion, or the first gospel, and that's when the Covenant of Grace was instituted. And then we have multiple administrations of the Covenant of Grace, right? We have the Abrahamic Covenant, the Sinaiic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant. These are all administrations under the Covenant of Grace. So when we receive the law in Deuteronomy, which covenant are we under? The Covenant of Grace. The Covenant of Grace, very good. So the, the law does have imperatives for us, right? It is do this, but Can we do this and live in the the fullest sense? Can we we achieve or merit our righteousness before God by keeping his law? No, because we're... Yes, Joni. No, no, please, go ahead. Yeah, please. When you said, which
2: covenant are we under?
0: Who is we? Um, Very good question. (laughs) We as God's people. Those have been... been,
2: I think I would argue that people who have not entered into the covenant of grace still stand condemned under the covenant of grace.
0: Absolutely. That is absolutely true. Yeah. So we as God's people are under the covenant of grace. So we receive the law under the covenant of grace. So we cannot merit uh, righteousness by keeping this law. It has been done for us by God the Son, who came and lived the perfect life that we cannot live. And on the cross we had the great exchange, right, where our sin, um, the, the punishment of our sin was put on Him. And in Him we receive His righteousness, are there any questions about that, or any further thoughts? Okay, I'm gonna go back and just review the preface to the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter twenty, verses two. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There are three important things that Connor taught us about this verse. Uh, can anyone remember what they are? First, we obey His commands because He is what. He's God, right? He's sovereign over all his creation. Second, he is thy God, the God who has given himself in covenant to the seed of Abraham and has taken them to be his people. So we see here a a reference to the covenant of grace. And the third point is that how did God save his people? Very good, yes. And it's by his grace, right? So, the commandments, the imperatives, are given to us in the setting of what God has already done, so we need to keep that in mind. In this preamble, we see the evidence of God's love and grace to his people. He does not begin with covenant demands. He narrates a very brief history of dealings with Israel, reminding them of how he saved them from Egyptian slavery. Now, was God obligated to do this? of course was not obligated it was by his grace as Johnny said in Adam the Israelites just like we before we are in Christ are covenant breakers we are under covenant works and we face God's punishment his wrath because he is a holy God and any sin in the presence of his holiness must be punished but thanks thanks be to God he does not treat us as, as we deserve or as they deserve he redeems them from bondage God gave the commandments to Israel only after saving them from slavery and thereby demonstrating the obedience to demands of his people does not merit salvation, but is offered out of hearts of grateful gratefulness for what he has done for us. In other words, put it simply, God accomplishes the covenant requirements. We must not underestimate what an astounding thing it is for us That the Holy God says to sinners, I am the Lord thy God. The Lord's words are grounded in all true obedience to the Ten Commandments on the sovereign grace of the triune God. These commandments remind us that salvation is by grace alone. The Lord did not save us so that we would remain as we were, lawless and immoral. In the first commandment we have the who of our worship, the proper object of our worship. That the only true God is to be worshipped. In the second commandment we have the what of our worship. the how of our worship. God is the only true God. And in the third commandment, we come back to the who of worship. The God whom we worship is holy and he ought to be treated as such. Not only in our speech, but in all of our conduct. And so the third commandment deals somewhat with the claims of the one holy and true God on us and the responsibility that we have to treat him as holy. The third commandment is seen as the very first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, Holy is your name. The third commandment is about treating the name of the Lord, the person of the Lord, the reputation of the Lord as if he is holy. So what is forbidden by the third commandment? But before we get to that, let's talk about this word, not take the Lord's name in vain. What does vain mean? What does it mean to not take the Lord's name in vain? Any thoughts on that?
2: Vanity, vanity comes to mind to do something. Someone who is vain spends a lot of time in front of the mirror, um, you know, not for like health reasons, but for their own uh, sense of self. Right. So using using God's name when it suits our purposes and not His. Okay, that's a very good example, John. Thank you. So the word vain
0: also can mean something along the lines of emptiness, right, or nothingness, or worthless, or To no good purpose. So when we take the Lord's name in vain, it means that we are taking the Lord's name to no good purpose. So we are forbidden, therefore, from taking the name of God in a manner that is wicked, worthless, or for wrong purposes. Now, does that mean that we avoid the name altogether? No. Scripture doesn't do that. Um, The name Yahweh is referenced in the Old Testament some 7,000 times. So we don't need to be superstitious about saying his name, but we must not misuse his name.
3: No, uh, Harry. Yes? So, the often uh, Jews will, out of fear of uh, breaking this commandment, they have they, they don't use the word Yahweh, right? Uh, they'll say, like, Adonai, something like that. Or, they'll say, Hashem, which is Hebrew for the name. <laughs> they don't they don't want to even touch the, the preciousness of the name Lord, uh, so they're having that fence around it. Right. So, in one sense, yeah, that's... It's commendable that they're trying to think of how not to misuse the name. But at the same time, all these references... To the name of the Lord, uh, remind us that
0: God has actually given us His name, and we are to worship His name and use it use it well. Though. Yes, thank you, Michael. Any other thoughts before we move on? So there are five things. This is from Herman Bobek. There are five things the Third Commandment forbids: cursing, swearing falsely unnecessary swearing, blasphemy, and any misuse of God's name. So what is cursing?
2: Putting your curse on someone. Yes,
0: it is. That's right. Yeah. It's
2: not just like if you drop a hammer on your foot and a bad word comes out. I want to call that cursing. Yes. I wouldn't say that is edifying, but I would also not call it cursing. Right, thank you, John. Those are the two
0: distinctions I actually want to bring out, so thank you. So, yes, one of them is actually using swear words, right? That would be We can call that cursing. But that's probably not what we have in line here, right, in the Third Commandment. Um, but does that mean we could use swear words? Or we should use swear words? Or is it wise to use swear words? No, it's not. I don't know that I would go to the Third Commandment to do that. I, I haven't seen anyone necessarily do that. I've seen some people say that we're made in the image of God, and part of that and keeping his name holy is to reflect his image so we not use swear words. So I can see that angle. But when it comes to swearing, I think more we would go more to like Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Or we can also go to Colossians 4.6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. Just a little divergence here on using swear words. Swearing shows that you are unconcerned about that which ought to concern Christians. Edification, grace, humility, patience, self-control, evangelistic witness, being an example to children, integrity, and many other virtues that we extol. These are undermined by the use of language that offends. But to get back to the the other component uh, of the word cursing, what Johnny said at first, is to curse someone. The third commandment prohibits cursing, which is the opposite of blessing, it is to pray that God will send us or our neighbor something evil, either temporarily or eternally. So then I ask you, is all cursing wrong in that sentence?
3: No.
0: Very good. Thank you for that. That's exactly right. We also have the imprecatory psalms, right? Psalm 69, Psalm 109. And both of these psalms are quoted in the New Testament. So, we do not have an utterance here of personal anger or hatred or revenge, but zeal for the honor of God when we're speaking about these imprecatory psalms. They are prophecies about the future fate of the ungodly, partly to be understood conditionally when conversion does not occur. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword, he is bent and ready to bow. Psalm 712. So cursing is the opposite of, pr- of praying or blessing, it wishes calamities and death to happen. The curse is an expression of sinful anger, hatred, and vindictiveness, and appropriates God's omnipotence to serve human sinful passions. So this is the sense that the third commandment forbids cursing, when, it serves, when we curse to serve our human sinful passions. This is an insult to God's majesty and holiness. And makes us subservient to human, sinful anger. Instead of persons offering their wills to serve God, the curse uses God's holy will for the purpose of our own sinful will. Cursing is not praying that God's righteousness may be revealed and shown, but demanding, requiring, charging God to punish our enemy. Cursing, when done in this way, is something demonic. It can, its content denotes a destructive hatred. So any questions about cursing? Okay, well let's, let's move on to swearing falsity. What is swearing falsity? In mind here. And Bobby gives us three ways that we can swear falsely. One is by taking an idolatrous oath. And what would that be? Be swearing by something other than God. That would be an idolatrous oath. A false oath, when we swear about matters that are untrue. And the third one is violated or broken oaths. So we have idolatrous oaths, false oaths, or violated or broken oaths. So in regards to idolatrous oaths, when someone swears by something other than God, we are not speaking of a false oath, but an idolatrous oath. False oaths. We also swear falsely when we use an oath to affirm something untrue in God's name is associated with a falsehood or lie. So th- there's a lot to that, but um, where do we commonly see this today? What would we call this today? maybe in a courtroom setting. That's right, perjury. When we use an oath to affirm something untrue. So, when we swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but we, we lie. That's perjury. So we must also be certain that a matter is permissible according to God's law. For what God forbids us to say or do, He also forbids us to promise or swear to do Otherwise, we would be calling on God to contradict, to contradict himself, to approve what he forbids or to punish what he approves. And we must also limit our swearing to matters that are possible for us because it's to swear of something that we are incapable of doing is to swear a lie, right? We can't swear that we would do something that we don't have the power to do that would be a lie. So, oaths must be limited to those matters that are necessary, that are worthy of confirmation by oath, and that serve to honor God and benefit our neighbor.
3: Any questions or thoughts? This was uh, one of the reasons that Protestants took issue with Roman Catholic celibacy vows. Like, okay, yeah, some have. Gift of singleness, but certainly not as many. We can't impose a vow on someone to be forever chaste. You are basically setting yourself up for failure. Um, That was one reason that the Protestants saw in in that particular uh, practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, didn't see it scripturally warranted as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So moving on to
0: violated oaths. So we swear falsely when we break an oath. We neglect. When we neglect an oath, a promise. So can we ever break an oath? Yes. Oh? Well,
2: yes. No, not sound too confident about <laughs> that. Uh, I mean you can you shouldn't. Maybe you should, if you realize that you've made uh, an ungodly oath.
0: Right. Mm-hmm.
2: right. At the time of making, at the time of making the oath, you might not realize all the implications of it, and um, might decide later that it's unwise to, to keep that oath.
0: Right. Very good. So uh, we can break an
2: oath, and
0: uh, well, it gives us the three circumstances where we can break an oath. The first one would be, it's permitted when an oath involves transgressing one of God's commandments, or when it leads to sin, okay? If we make an oath that's going to lead us to sin, or breaking God's law, we should not keep that oath. It would have been better for Herod to have broken his oath to the daughter of Herodias, Matthew 14. David's oath to destroy Nabal's house was wrong. It was properly broken when Abigail appealed to him. Breaking an oath is also permitted when one party to a mutual oath breaks it. What is it? Unfortunately, a fairly common occurrence of that today. Divorce. Divorce, very good. So when that happens, the other party is also freed from their oath. And the third one is we we may break an oath or a vow when external circumstances beyond our control make it impossible to keep it. Thus, the godly promise to obey God completely and sincerely and yet fail repeatedly. But aside from these instances, the oath that was promised with God in view must be kept. It is not to be broken for the following circumstances. When an oath disadvantages us, when it appears fulfilling the vow would be disadvantageous to us. So if I make an oath that's going to potentially Lose me money or disadvantage me in some way does not give me a pass from keeping that oath. Disappointment. Among the characteristics of a righteous person is one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's what it means to have some integrity. right? And a second is not, an oath is not to be broken when it appears later that deceit was involved. Anyone remember a scripture verse or where this came into play?
2: Jacob, Lamb? Yes, that's a good one. Uh, where uh, he was betrothed to the younger sister, but then uh, was deceived into marrying the older sister. Yes. Uh, and he, a- anybody I have ever known personally would would break the oath. They would get in and all of it. Um But there seems to be, uh, even though Jacob was known as a deceitful man. Right. Uh, he found it wise to keep this oath. And it actually he swore to this hurt because this created many other problems in his life.
0: Right. That's right. Ben, did you have another one or is that the one you're
2: No, I, I mean
4: I, I think uh right would also be uh, Yes.
0: How about the Gibeonites? The Israelites had to spare them, right? Unnecessary swearing. So we see this also among the Israelites. Time and time again we encounter expressions such as the following. God is witness between you and me, Genesis 31. God judge between us, Genesis 31. As the Lord lives, Judges 8. May the Lord do so to me, and more so if anything but death parts parts me from you, Ruth 1. These and similar oaths were all too common with Israel, mostly in daily life. While they were seldom used in the courts. And then Jesus also limits this practice, right? In Matthew 5 and 23, and also again in James 5. So today among us, this unnecessary swearing occurs especially in public life. Oaths are required for all sorts of occasions involving the law. But many of us fall prey to it in our daily lives. Can anyone think of any examples? There's common phrases right like cross my heart hope to die or if we say something on my life or something along these lines. And these things turn into nothing but exclamations and fillers. Bobbing says people carelessly, lightly and without reverence say, O Lord, O God, O Jesus, doing so out of custom, when astonished, in pain, upon sneezing, and toasting someone, and foolish joking, to stir up laughter, or whatever the case may be. All of these violate reference for the sacredness of God's name. They diminish God's exalted majesty to call upon his omniscience, omnipotence, and righteousness at the drop of a hat. Also for the most insignificant matters. it starts to hit it starts to hit home here a little bit, right? (laughs) That's why I started off with the song, His Mercy is More. How about blasphemy? What is blasphemy?
3: Slander against the name of God. Yeah, very good.
0: Blasphemy God takes place when one says something about God that directly contradicts and violates his nature and properties. Another violation of the third commandment is any misuse of God's name. All misuse of God's name, that is, all his revelations, works, words, deeds, would be encompassed here. Thoughtless use of God's name in prayer, letting one's thoughts wander during the reading or proclamation of God's word during prayer. This, too, is sin. However inadvertently or unconsciously it happens, it is evidence of what? Irreverence. To God. How about misusing God's word? How can that be done?
3: How do we misuse God's word mm-hmm. to justify our ways? Yes, to justify our ways.
0: Yes, we can twist it to fit our context and what we believe, what we want. Any other ways we misuse that word? I think a lot of times we think that. Or Christians in general think that if
1: you read the Bible, then everything else will be okay, like through the day. And if you don't read the Bible, then it's you know, sort of like a talisman, you know, like superstitious attachment yes. to your personal devotions. Yes. I certainly
0: feel that tension myself, right? I try to work, keep up with the Bible reading plan, you
2: know, try to do that it just be wrote, Bible reading. A very, a very honest man once told me he was two and a half years into his one year Bible plan. <laughs> um, and he said it in front of a group, and he wasn't bragging, he was just saying, he was just admitting how difficult it is sometimes to stay on schedule. Right. Uh, but that opened us all up to talk about how difficult that is, and uh, to kind of take away the superstitious aspect of it.
0: You can also misuse God's word by trying to use it to ascertain future events, right? How many times have people said they know when Christ is returning? Mm-hmm.
4: So. Oh, what you say? I said left behind. <laughs> no, I, I, I laugh now, but I grew up and... Some semblance of control, you know, right. when is
0: supposed to So, why is the third commandment significant? <clears throat> Kevin DeYoung says, How did Watch Your Mouth make it to the top ten? But what's the big deal about God's name? It's powerful. It is powerful
1: the speaks.
0: So when we take that thing, sure if we're it. Very good, thank you, Joseph. Yeah. Enjoying it because it's powerful.
2: Right? Yeah, uh, you know, the king of the land. When the king of the land signs a decree, it's the law of the land, and uh, you would be wise not to. Uh, I mean, if, if the if that law is causing a problem or uh, is not understood. It's one thing to study the law and ask questions and, and uh, try your best to obey it, um, but it's a whole other thing to uh, you know, start slandering the king because you don't like his laws. Right. Uh, you know, the, when the king says something, the king declares war, we all go to war. When the king declares peace, you're now a criminal if you keep fighting war. Right. So to throw this person's name around uh, as though there's no consequence to that is foolish.
0: Speaks to God's authority, right? But maybe even something is more fundamental than God's authority. Um, maybe it's God's being. If we go to Exodus 3, where God speaks to Moses from the burning bush, Moses asks God, If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is your name? What shall I say to them? God replies with those famous words, I am who I am. Say to this people of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. God names himself as the sovereign, self existent one. In fact, the covenant name Yahweh is probably connected to the Hebrew word to be. This is a reference to God's satiety. God is that he is. That is his name. We see the same thing in Exodus 33. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, and in reply, God speaks to, to his name, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. The way to see God's glory is to hear his name. To know the name Yahweh, the merciful and gracious one, is not merely to know something about God, it is to know God himself. So God shows himself to us by speaking his name. Their name is a significant thing, right? It's not just tangential to our being. Over time, as people get to know us as people, our name embodies who we are. Just think about someone you love deeply. Your child, grandchild, a parent, a friend, or a spouse. The name of that person represents something more than just a marking on a page, right? Names are precious, which is why we don't like our... Name ridiculed, twisted, or made fun of. Everywhere in Scripture the name of the Lord is exalted in the highest possible terms. Psalm 8, O Lord, or our Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 29, 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Matthew 6 9, the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. The apostles proclaim that there is no other name under heaven given among by men which must we must be saved, Acts 4. Paul assures the Romans that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, in Romans 10. And then the culminating event in all creation is when, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So the Bible does not want us to forget the holy importance of the divine name. So, how do we obey the commandment? Can
1: I, can I Yes, you? please call it again. Um At the end of uh, question 113 of the Learning Catechism, it talks about uh, some other things that are forbidden. being ashamed of, the, of God or being ashamed to uh, Christian religion by uncomfortable and wise and and offensive walk basically bringing shame upon the name of God by taking the name of a Christian and walking in a way unworthy of it. It just kind of reminds me anytime you're in the military you go somewhere they always tell you, you are representing the U.S. Army or whatever branch you're representing, your unit, so act accordingly and don't bring shame upon the name of the military. And it's, it's the same with us. Uh, we are living, walking representatives of God's name and who he is and what he's done for us, and if our, when our, um, our actions don't live up to who God is and what He's done for us, we're, we're bringing shame. We're bringing discredit upon God's name. Yes. Thank you, partner.
2: Yeah, but with that, I think you could argue that every time we sin, we're we'll breaking the third commandment, because you're our Father? The Father of mercies. You know, if I saying, what does that say about my father? I'm shaming his name, in a sense. That's why conflict in the church is much worse than conflict outside of it. Right. believers, their father is a devil. That's one thing. For father fathers, the father of mercy, and yet we are conflict. Right. That brings shame to God's name. Yeah. Thank
0: you,
2: Joseph.
0: Yeah. <coughs> what you're saying, but whose image do we stand by? We right? stand by the image of God. So there are three points in how we obey the commandment. We violate the third commandment when we take up the name of God in service of what is false, what is frivolous, and what is phony. So God's name is in service of what is false. Whenever we attach God's name to lies, half-truths, or ill-conceived purposes, we break the third commandment. We saw this means perjuring is a serious sin because under oath we swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. We also profane God's name by accusing him of things that are false. There is certainly a right, scriptural way to lament and cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But to be angry with God, whereas some will tell you to forgive God, as if he had sins or crimes against you, is call to call into question his works and character, and so to profane his name. Kevin DeYoung tells us how this hits a little closer to home. If we use the name of God to ascribe a false sense of our authority to our ideas, plans, or opinions, we violate the third commandment. Take politics, for example. We ought to be very sure that the Bible speaks clearly about our preferred political policy or our newest cultural hot take before we insist that every Christian must agree with us. Likewise, we must be careful not to throw around phrases like, God told me to do this, or God wants us to do that. We shouldn't slap the name of God on the back of our plans just because we feel strongly about our proposed ideas. Again, the young tells the story we're in the middle of a capital campaign and the elders found an existing church to buy and renovate. They were careful not to overstate the case. He said it would have been very easy to say we prayed about this and God has provided and opened the door. God wants us to have this building but we need you to give graciously. Will you be be obedient to the Lord and give? Church leaders say these sort of things all the time, and it's not fair. We can't claim divine authority for a capital campaign. What we can say is, we've sought the Lord and spent a lot of time researching all the options. As your leaders, we all feel that this is the right move for the church, and we think God will be honored if we move forward together. The difference between these two speeches is subtle, but very significant. Phil Reichen puts it well when he says a more serious way to break the third commandment is by using God's name to advance our own agenda. Some Christians say, the Lord told me to do this, or worse they say, the Lord told me to tell you to do this. This is false prophecy. God has already said whatever he needs to say to us in his word. Of course, there is also an inward leading of the Holy Spirit. But this is only an inward leading, and it should not be misrepresented as an authoritative word from God. When we claim absolute divine authority for our human plans and decisions, we violate the third commandment. God's name is holy, and it must not be added willy-nilly to our credential decisions, no matter how sincere or important the decisions might be. Any other thoughts or questions about that? say,
4: on the whole, um, this is all very intimately tied to uh, speech. And when we look at that kind of topic, um, I mean, it connects right in with the third commandment. So uh, our speech, I don't think we uh, think about. We are quick to speak uh, instead of slow to speak, and I think this gets us in trouble a lot. So when God created heaven and earth, he said, and then through his speech, and then even when Jesus uh, is explicating the Ten Commandments, uh, Matthew five through seven, uh, Matthew says, and he opened his mouth and spoke to them and taught them uh, and these things. Uh, and then in there too, it says, you know, let your yes be yes. Uh, Jesus says that in James five. Um, you know, simple yes or no. Uh, so I, yeah, I think the issue of authority because when God speaks, he has the authority to do that, and so um, yeah, this is getting a lot to, I think, a careless um, talk uh, you know, talk is cheap, but in a sense it's, it's really uh, not, uh, so what we say, because it comes from our heart, is vitally important so, just this idea of speech under uh, the third commandment is very important uh, including myself, we would all do well to think more deeply about what we say, uh, you know, who we're saying it to, uh, and yeah, the content, etc. So, um, kind of a little bit more of a conceptual aspect of this, but certainly connects. Both Thanks, Ben. Very real, but I mean, it's a real
0: struggle, right? Yeah. How many times we're in a conflict with someone, and you know we're, we're dug in, and we feel very strongly about our position. Often are we tempted to say, to truly believe that God is on our side, and to say we must do this because God wants us to do this. And to that
2: pray. reminds me of during the Civil War, Lincoln says this in the Second Inaugural Address: both the Confederacy and the Union prayed to the same God, and both believed God was on their side. Right. And since they were so dug in, but.
1: Really,
0: they should have well, God might not be on either of us, right? So, God's name in service of what is frivolous. We break the third commandment, we use the Lord's name carelessly. Jesus Himself warns against this vain repetition when he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty praises phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So Jesus here is not trying to frighten new Christians little kids who are just learning to pray. We are all bound to be inarticulate at first. But his concern is not for polish of speech, but for purity of heart. Using the Lord's name in a frivolous way would certainly include using God or Jesus Christ as curse words, of course. Modern cursing is somewhat different than from Old Testament cursing, which was more like deliberate blasphemy than a bad habit. But still it says something about our attitude toward God if we can speak His name so lightly and carelessly. When we are talking about our Creator, our Savior, our Judge, our King, the God of the universe, the one who is, should not have His name tossed out flippantly as an expression of shock, outrage, or anger. And then violation three, God's name in service of that which is phony. If we break the third commandment, being false or frivolous, we can also violate the commandment by being phony. Think about our approach to worship. I know we're all human, and we all get distracted, right? It's a challenge, it's bound to happen. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to be careful when we, to really mean the words that we are singing or praying during worship service. How many times do you hear politicians say, God bless you and God bless America? It may seem like an innocent expression of civil religion, but as Christians, we know that the name of God is not something to toss around lightly or in an effort to win votes. The main point is that we should never use the Lord's name in a very trite or frivolous manner. As Christians, we sin every time we besmirch the name by which we were called. We must act, think, feel, and speak in a way that is proper for those who are called by the name of the Holy God. Let's get back to Connors. This is the point the Lord makes again and again in Ezekiel 36, announcing to his people that he will act on their behalf for the sake of his holy name, that they would no longer profane his name among the nations. We see the same thing in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 where the Lord promises to hear the prayers of the people who are called by his name. So we must never forget the privilege and responsibility that comes with bearing the name of Christ. The young says, Sometimes you meet Christians who insist, I'm a Jesus follower, or I'm a disciple of the Messiah, or I'm a Jesus person, or I'm a follower of the way. They'll do anything to avoid saying the word Christian. And we can understand that to a certain extent, right? It certainly carries a lot of baggage in today's world. But it's our family name. Mm -hmm. It's the name that speaks of our union with God's anointed one. We should never be ashamed of the word Christian. Nor should we be ashamed of the triune name in which we were baptized. Among other things, baptism is a naming ceremony. It's where we are marked out as belonging to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So consequently, we violate the Third Commandment when we as baptized Christians live as if we do not bear the name of God. The worst thing that could be phony about us is us. That may be where some of us are we may go to church, we may sing the songs, we may say the right things, but it's not reality. If we are called by the holy name of God, we must not damage that name by living as if our conduct does not concern him or his glory. If you want a simple summary of the third commandment, a New Testament exhortation putting in positive language all that is required can be seen in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, in word, or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We obey the third commandment by living as Christians, by speaking and doing everything according to the family name. For when we do all that we do, and do it in Christ, for Christ, and through Christ, we show that His name is the name we value, the name we love, and the name that is above all names. then we have a short conclusion here, but any thoughts before we move on to conclusion? Any thoughts or questions? So when we are invited to call upon the name of the Lord, what is involved is not merely asking God for something that He may or may not grant. The reference is to a clause in a treaty that we signed by faith. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans ten, verse thirteen. We are called therefore to bind God to us in a covenantal obligation. But we must remember this obligation is not one of merit. God is not obligated to us because we have done anything that would put Him under our obligation. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, now now receive mercy because of their disobedience. Rather, he is obligated because he himself has promised to bind himself to all who call upon his name." So when we think about these violations of the Third Commandment we all went through, we can all think about how many times we violated these in our own lives and how short we fall. But we don't have to worry anymore about our failure to meet the conditions. But because we have done these things that he somehow will not love us. The main point to remember is his love is not dependent upon what we do, but upon who he is. He has committed himself to rescuing all who have been invaded and held captive by sin. We are merely to call upon his name. After all, Jesus Christ is himself, the Lord God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. In 1 John 5.13, John says, The Father has given him the name that is above every name. We are to believe in the name of the Son of God. To call upon Christ's name is to call upon the name of Yahweh. That is the Lord of our righteousness. Jeremiah twenty three five and Jeremiah 33.15 we protect God's name because we are saved through calling upon it. We also bear God's name as children of God and brothers of brothers and sisters in Christ. In the Old Testament, God's people refer to as my people who are called by my name, 2 Chronicles 7.14. In contrast to those who sought to make a name for themselves, the Tower of Babel. For unlike any name we could make for ourselves, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, Proverbs 18.10, defending us from the invading forces of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So that concludes the lesson. Any other thoughts or questions? Anything unrelated? Someone has any questions about, or would like to discuss? Has the study of the Ten Commandments been useful to you so far? We say God's law, right? It puts ourselves under the microscope. It shows us how how, how short we fall in our day to day keeping of His law. Let's always also remember His mercy, what He's done for us in His Son. It is our only salvation. We will have bad days when we don't keep the law. Let's go to heaven prayer. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us this time of study. We pray that you would use it to strengthen our faith in you and increase our dependence upon you. Lord, we fail to keep your law seemingly and moment to moment, day by day. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your Son. In Him, we have forgiveness. In Him, we have the righteousness. In Him, we are assured of our eternal glory. Thank you for all that you have given us in Christ. Lord, now we pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds for worship. Draw us to you, Lord. We pray in Christ's name, through the power of your spirit. Amen.